This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Yankee Tauber about his new book, The Book of Genesis, with commentary and insights from 500 Sages and Mystics, published by Open Book Press in 2022. The 3,325 citations and readings that compromise the commentary are called from more than 500 unique sources, representing every time period and genre of Torah learning. Rabbi Tauber, welcome to the show. Yes. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, uh, my name is Yankee Tower. I was born in in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, um, which I guess is uh, usually when I meet Jews, they're usually from Brooklyn. I'm sure there are Jews that are not from Brooklyn, but lots of us are from Brooklyn. Uh, I grew up in Crown Heights. Uh, in my early 20s, I started uh, my career as a writer, uh, and uh, I basically started off by pre- creating uh, English language transcripts of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's uh, talks. The Rebbe at that time would would uh, conduct a talk every Shabbos, every Saturday afternoon for several hours. And of course, on Sabbath, uh, religious Jews don't write or use any recording material. So in order to preserve these talks, they actually needed to be memorized. And I wasn't part of the memorization team. I don't have such a great memory, but there was a group of, of people who would literally memorize the Rebbe's talks, convene after after Shabbat was over and sort of go over everything and put it down into writing. And at a certain point, there was a, a need and a desire to prepare English language transcript as well. The transcripts were usually in Yiddish and, and Hebrew, which were the languages that the Rebbe spoke. Uh, I was recruited uh, to, um, I had done a little bit of writing before then, so I was recruited to join that effort. And that's basically um, how I sort of started uh, my career in writing. Uh, We produced for many years uh, a weekly newsletter that had the Rebus Talks in it. Uh, Starting in 1999, I became the content editor of Chabad.org. Chabad.org, guys, uh, for those who, who are familiar with the website, is actually the largest Jewish content website in the world. It has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pages of uh, content, uh, Jewish content of, of all different kinds of uh, areas of Jewish learning, including uh, how-to guides and different Jewish holidays and mitzvot, and as well as a huge library of, of uh, all kinds of uh, books of Jewish learning and articles and essays. So I was the one that actually started uh, in the late 90s when the infancy of the internet. It was a very exciting thing for me to join because I always wanted 
to be part of the electronic publishing world. Uh, the possibilities of what you were able to do back then was very exciting. It still is, but we're so used to it now, this idea of being able to link text to each other with hypertext and cross-linking things and, and so on and so forth and using uh, multimedia. Uh, so I was involved in that for around 15 years uh, as the lead content editor of Chabad.org. And at a certain point, I also got involved uh, with this project, the Chumash Project or the Bible with Commentary Project, which always was a dream of mine to create. And um, and now we've published the first volume of that. And that's the book uh, that you're reviewing today. I appreciate that. That's a great journey. And how does this book differ from other books that you've written in the past? Well, um, it, I guess the scope of it, the breadth of it is far beyond anything I've ever attempted before. In earlier writings that I've done, I would focus on a certain topic or a certain area of, of uh, Torah learning and uh, write books, whether it was Hasidic philosophy or it was uh, different areas of, of Torah learning. Um, but what I always wanted to do, and it always bothered me, actually, uh, there are many, many uh, books out there of what's called uh, Chumashim. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Chumash is the Hebrew term for the, for the Jewish Bible, the actual five books of Moses. Chumash means five, so it's a fifth. The five books are, are referred to as the Chumash. And there's many, many books out there that sort of present to you the five books of Moses, the, the Jewish Bible, uh, the main part of the Jewish Bible, with all sorts of different commentaries on them, uh, explaining the meaning of the text, applying it to different life situations, and so on. But what I found in my experience uh, is that uh, virtually all of these Hamashim are focused on a certain area of, of Torah learning. So some of them would focus on, on the actual commentaries that explain the meaning of the text. Others would focus on, on a certain area of Torah learning or a certain particular ideology. And I always felt that the most powerful thing about the Torah, about Torah, Jewish learning, is there's a phrase by the sages which says, Shivim Panim Torah. There are 70 faces to the Torah which means that every single verse of the Bible in Jewish learning is understood on so many different levels, so many different ways. It's never seen as having one particular meaning. It's always seen as something which needs to be applied in many, many diverse directions. You know, you have the legal interpretation of how Torah is translated into a body of law. You have the psychological interpretation where it's giving you guidance in uh, real life or sort of like the self-help or how-to part of it. You have the mystical area, which is also known as Kabbalah, which deals with um, which deals with all the, the mystical meaning of the text. You have the what's known as Musa, which is the ethical or moral meaning of the text. And, and, and then there's the Midrashic, which, which comes with the more allegorical meanings that there are. And, and the beauty of Torah is to see how each uh, verse can be understood in so many different ways and applied in so many ways. And for people who have native knowledge of, of Hebrew, there's any number of books that they can take out. There's a very famous edition of the Torah called Mikra'at Gedolot, which means the great uh, scripture, which is basically takes the text of the Torah and surrounds it with many, many different commentaries of many different genres. 
and you and for someone who and there's other works also that do this. So for someone who is actually a native uh, who has who has the education and the knowledge and experience to be able to um, enjoy and and delve into the source texts, they have access to this huge breadth of of knowledge and insight. But there isn't anything like that in my experience for the English reader, and I felt that it's important to replicate that. And to give that same experience to someone who has either a limited knowledge of Hebrew or no knowledge of Hebrew at all, and nevertheless be able to experience this type of Torah learning that someone who has a yeshiva education or someone who has learned uh, is able to do. And this is what I sought to replicate, and this was always a lifelong dream of mine, to create this kind of work where someone can actually enjoy and delve into the, the multifaceted um, world that is uh, Torah learning uh, or biblical uh, learning in, in Judaism. We mentioned at the top, and, and you're saying here, that there's a great breadth of the, the sources that they've included. 500 sages mystics, that's not a small number. Actually, you... it was 577. Okay. And, and this is only for the book of Genesis. And I anticipate that by the time we finish, this is an ongoing project. We're obviously going to do the other four books as well. We're already well underway in that project. And I anticipated that by the time we're finished with the five books, it's going to be closer to a thousand, if not more. Okay. So there we go. It's, it's, a, it's a big, big project. So I think that looking at that number, it's very large, but maybe there's others, maybe there are more. How did you decide what to include and what to exclude when it came to the commentators? That's a question that I get a lot, and everyone asks me that. So obviously, first of all, you know, you know, anything, the Torah is actually endless. There's, there's, a, uh, there's an online, um, uh, um, you know, it, it exists online, and, and it also exists in, on disk. It's a digitalized uh, library of Torah commentary called Otzer HaChachma, which every year they come out with a new version that has n- tens of thousands of additional Torah works on it. Right now, I think it's something like 160 or 170,000 works. I first started using this resource. It's an amazing resource. I first started using it around, uh, I'd say, 15 or 20 years ago. And at the time, they had 50,000. Um, and it's growing and growing, and it's not the only one. There are other online resources that have it more, and they don't even have, every once in a while, I come across books, and even in my own library, I have books that aren't even yet on that resource. So we're definitely talking about hundreds of thousands, if not more, of works that have been published through the generations of Jewish wisdom. And and there's an interesting thing about uh, Jewish learning, which is, which really feeds into what we're doing here. And that is Jewish learning and biblical commentary, interestingly enough, is really almost synonymous with each other. What I mean is any, any, any book of, of Jewish wisdom, whether it's the Talmud, whether it's the Midrash, whether it's the Shulchan Aruch, which is the basic work of Torah law, whether it's the many, many hundreds of thousands of works of philosophy and psychology and ethics that have been written through generations, they're all seeing, they all see the Torah, the Bible, as their starting point. They're either a commentary on, the ver- on a verse in Torah, 
whether a commentary on a commentary universe of Torah. So for example, the Talmud would take a verse in Torah and interpret it, and then the other commentaries will come and discuss what the Talmud is saying, and then a, a generation later you'll have more commentaries discussing what these commentaries were saying, and so on and so on and so on, and this has been going on for more than 3,000 years. So we're talking about a vast library of wisdom that all traces itself one way or the other back to a single work, which is which is the Torah. And so therefore, when you talk about biblical commentary or you talk about works of, of Jewish wisdom and Torah, you're really just describing the same body of work in two ways. And to me, what is fascinating is to be able to present this classical Jewish wisdom uh, in its native context, which is as commentary on the Bible, because that's really how it all originates. So the world knows Judaism. They know about the Talmud. They know about uh, all the other um, uh, children or stepchildren of, of Jewish wisdom that have been uh, built over and expanded over the years. Uh, but what is fascinating to see how they all trace back to that to that one book. So now getting back to your question, how do you pick what to include? So obviously you can't include everything. It is so vast, it'll become unmanageable. And obviously you can spend your entire life learning and only scratch the surface. And if you want to create a single book that someone can take off the shelf and say, this is a snapshot or an encapsulation or, or, or a sample, will, if you weigh, uh, of, of what Torah is and the many, many different ways that Torah has been applied through generations, you're going to have to pick and choose. So what I try to do is two things. First of all, to focus on what the big ideas of Judaism are and make sure that they include it. There are the, obviously the major authors through the generations. You have Rashi, who wrote the most basic commentary on the Torah. You have Maimonides, the Rambam, who is considered a very, very central figure in many areas of, of Jewish learning, whether it's the legal side or whether it's the philosophical side. He wrote many, many fundamental works in that area. And you have others throughout the generations that are what you would call the big names and to try in some way to represent the gist of what their contribution was. So what are the main points or the main ideas that they contributed to the, to the, to the whole picture of what the world knows as Judaism? At the same time, you want to also include at least some examples or some, some illuminating examples of the smaller voices. You have, you have I mean, in, in my experience, even though I've been studying Torah all my life, in my experience of compiling this book, I've come across names and, and books and, and works that I've never heard of in my life, and most people haven't. They're, they're just hidden away somewhere. They never got the spotlight. They never got the, the full attention of, 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 the, of the scholarly world. And it's important for me also to include here and there samples of that. So to have sort of a representative selection of all these different areas. And that, that's sort of going from the outside in, when you're taking the, the full scope of Jewish learning and you're trying to sort of give you a sampler or, or, or one book that's, that's touching on the main points and the big ideas. At the same time, we're also working from the inside out, which is when you have a certain incident or a certain story in the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, just to use one example, you have in the beginning of the book of Genesis, you have a story of, 
of uh, Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge, which is, of course, a very strange and mysterious story. God creates a first man and woman, puts them in the Garden of Eden, tells them don't eat from one tree, and guess what? They go and they eat from the tree, and then they get banished from the garden. And of course, this is a, a, a very fundamental story that, that so much is based on. But what does it mean? What happened? What, what was the sin about? What does the tree of knowledge represent? Is it about freedom of choice? Is it about wisdom? Is it about emotional attachment? Is it about sexuality? Is it about... Um, there's so many different voices and so many different interpretations and explanations. So I try to identify what are the 15 or 20 most fascinating things and obviously to get a diverse range of, of different ideas and sort of put them all together. And if you open up the book and you look in the page, those two, three pages that discuss the story, you'll find 20 or 25 different angles or interpretations. You know, is it mystical knowledge that they were seeking? Is it, is it, is it, uh, um, uh, emotional attachment to things that, that human beings lacked before and so on and so forth. So, so this is, or in the same with any other major story in the Bible to try to present what are the various different angles of how this has been understood and interpreted through the generations. I appreciate that. That's very helpful context. I think in some ways we, we've spoken to this in your last answer and, and already as we've been discussing. One of the things that's mentioned on the Open Book Press website is that this book is, quote, revolutionary. To what degree or, or in what way is the book revolutionary? Well, what, 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 uh, one of the things that we try to do is to intervene as little as possible between the actual source texts and, and the audience. There's always a tendency when you're writing to explain and sometimes to over-explain and to sort of mediate and to tell the reader or the student, this is what it means, this is how you should understand it. And, and I feel personally that this is doing an injustice to the reader it's uh, underestimating the, the reader's intelligence, underestimating the value of what learning is. The, the greatest value that there is in learning is when you, as a reader or as a student, interact with the text yourself and figure out on your own what it means and even more importantly, what it means to you. And obviously, there needs to be a certain kind of mediation. My job as the author and compiler and editor of this work is to bring these source texts to people who would otherwise not be able to have direct access to them. If someone is proficient in, in the actual source text, if someone can read the original Hebrew or the Yiddish or the Judeo-Arabic or, or, or Aramaic or the various different languages that, that these original works were written on, that is obviously the most ideal way to learn. But there's two barriers to that. One barrier is sometimes knowledge of the language or knowledge of the terminology, which sometimes can be very strange. You can, you can understand Hebrew perfectly. It doesn't mean that you'll fully understand the passage in the Talmud or the Zohar uh, because of the certain terminology and certain terms that you obviously need training to understand what they mean and to swim in this material. And the second uh, uh, challenge is time. Not, not everyone is a full-time scholar. Not everyone has the hours and hours and hours of time that are needed to be able to delve into these texts. And some of these passages go on for many, many pages. And you have to process a huge amount of information to get to that one succinct point that we sort of isolated 
from this text. So in that sense, our job as writers and editors is to sort of mediate between between the, the, the source text and the reader and the student. On the other hand, when that mediation turns into sort of forcing a certain point of view or a certain perspective and a certain way of understanding, then I think uh, the, the value that there is in this mediation is sort of diminished by the fact that you've basically, uh, in a way, obscured the text because you've imposed your own uh, understanding of it and your own, uh, you know, and we all have opinions, we all have our own ideology, we all have our own way of seeing things. And instead of trying to force, or, or even not force, but to sort of impose a, our own understanding of the text, I believe that it's very important to allow the reader to interact with the text itself and to reach their understanding on their own. So, for example, one, one uh, um, common thing that I find in translations of the Torah is that in many times the actual text in the Torah is sort of obscure. It, it's not that clear. It has various, it requires some explanation. And what the tendency of the translator is to go ahead and explain it. But the person reading the Hebrew they see the, the the nuances. They see the 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 you know the the, the various uh, ways in which it could be understood. And the translator has just sort of shoehorned that verse uh, uh, into one particular interpretation. What what we try to do in in our homish in our uh, translation of the Bible is to sort of replicate the nuances that there are in the Hebrew in the English as well. So when you read something, you say, hey, wait, what does this mean? And you have an actual word here. And this word actually has various different meanings. And guess what? The various uh, commentators in the Bible, different commentaries took different meanings from this verse. This gives the ownership of the uh, uh, of the reader and the, and the student to read this verse and to read this commentary and to read this source text and sort of process this on their own and reach their own conclusions about what it means to them. I want to drill down a little bit into the translation process because that's a big part of the book besides for the commentators. How do you translate? It's, it's a very difficult process and procedure. Were you looking at other translations? What were some of the other things that you were thinking about and tools that you used to come, come up with the translation? Well, I, I basically have on my shelf about 40 or 50 different translations of, of the Bible. And I look at all of them before I, uh, before I actually uh, decide on how to translate a particular word or a particular phrase. And I just want to point out, I'm not saying that the approach of following a certain um, a, a certain methodology or a certain uh, angle on the text is not a legitimate one. It's obviously very legitimate. For example, if you were to take the, the, the text of the Torah and you would translate it according to Rashi, Rashi is uh, accepted throughout the Jewish world as being the most fundamental, the most basic way of understanding the text. So it's perfectly legitimate for a translator to go and say, okay, I'm translating the Torah according to Rashi. And that's fine, as long as the reader is aware of what they're getting. They're getting a, a translation of the text according to Rashi. 
now, uh, if they'll go ahead and open up a different, uh, let's say, Nachmanides, Ramban, who lived about uh, 150 years after Rashi, and he had a different angle on it, a different way of understanding it, it'll, it'll be a completely different translation. Uh, and and uh, sometimes they won't even understand, well, why would Rashi understand this verse meaning this, and, and, and Nachmanides understands it completely differently? There seems to be no relation. On the other hand, when you actually have uh, the actual original Hebrew, you can see how both these meanings are there. So what I try to do is I'm using two, two, two. Uh, uh, I'm being guided by two things over here. First of all, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at at the actual at the many different translations, uh, as I said, that already have been done. And secondly, I'm looking at what the classical commentaries how they interpret this and they understood it. And obviously, this isn't possible to do in every case, but I try as much as possible to find uh, an actual English equivalent that will uh, sort of uh, tolerate or point to these uh, various different um, these various different meanings. So, uh, I, I mean, this all sounds very abstract. I'll, I'll give like one simple example. There's, there's a very common word in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, key. Now, this word key uh, is, is, is a very versatile word, and it can mean many, many different things. In some contexts, key means that. In some contexts, it means because. In other contexts, it means when. Sometimes it can mean but. Now, obviously, uh, you can therefore take many verses in the, in the Torah and understand them in different ways. How you how are you going to translate the word key? So now what does the translator do? The translator basically has to decide how is this verse going to be understood? Uh, how is it going to be interpreted? And then they decide, uh, in this case, in this context, does key mean that? Or does it mean because? Does it mean when? Or does it mean but? So what would be a word in English? English also has words that are nuanced and can mean different things. So one way, one solution is to consistently, and in most cases, and obviously it's not possible in every case, because in some cases it just won't work, but in I would say in 95% of the cases, you can simply translate the word key as as. And when you say the word as, as can mean because, right? When I say uh, I was late as I missed the train. Now it's obviously... A little bit more ambiguous. If I would say I was late because I missed the train, okay, then uh, then that would be clearer. But when I say I was late as I missed the train, it also can be understood as meaning I was late because I missed the train. But that same word as could also mean that, or it could also mean when, right? I was walking down the street as I saw X Y Z. So I'll give you an example in the Torah where that word key will uh, actually um, has actually been understood in different ways and by translating it as as we sort of cover the different uh, applications so uh, I'll give you an example where it describes the death of Rachel right Jacob's beloved wife Rachel uh, dies while she is giving birth to Benjamin Okay, and this was a very tragic event in Jacob's life. 
people, those who are familiar with the story, Jacob worked for seven years in order to marry Rachel because he loved her. And uh, first he meets her at the well, he falls in love with her, he works for seven years. Then his father-in-law, which is the ultimate biblical figure of, of Laban the deceiver, tricks him and gives him the other daughter, Leah, instead of Rachel. And then Jacob has to work another seven years in order to marry Rachel. And then for many, many years, Rachel is barren. She doesn't have any children. It's very tragic. And in the end, she finally has a child. But then when she gives birth to her second child, Benjamin, she dies in childbirth. And then Jacob, of course, uh, buries her on the side of the road and builds this monument which the Bible says stands to this very day. And actually, you can go today in Israel uh, near Bethlehem and you can see the actual tomb of Rachel, which is to this very day uh, a place of prayer uh, for Jews and so on. So what does the Torah describe? The scribe says, says how Rachel gave birth and she had difficulty in her, in her birthing. And then as she was having this difficult birth, uh, it, the, the, the verse then says, and I'll read it in Hebrew, which in English is as, and it was as her soul departed, as she had died. She called his name Ben-Oni, which means the son of my sorrow. And then his father called him Benjamin, Benjamin, which means the son of the right, that was the only one of Jacob's children that was born in the land of Israel, which was very significant for Jacob, and, and so on. So the words Kimesa is sometimes translated because she died. In other words, the Torah is telling us that as that 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 the reason that 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 because she died, that's the reason why he was named the son of my sorrow. And the other interpretation is while she was dying, that she actually named him Benjamin while she was dying. But when you say, and it was, as her soul went out, as she died, the word as can be understood as because, it can also be understood as while. So this is just one example of a certain ambiguity in the text that if, when you find a right English equivalent, you can sort of preserve that multiple uh, kind of meaning uh, another quick example is the word safer, okay, which can sometimes mean a book, it can sometimes mean a story, it can sometimes mean a uh, history, it can sometimes mean a number, okay, these are all very, very diverse meanings for one word. So one approach is to every time the word appears to translate it according to the context, or you can translate the word safer as a count, now, the word account can mean a story, it can also mean a book, and it can also mean a number. So, so th these are just so, some examples of the efforts we're making to sort of preserve the richness of the Hebrew original in the English translation. I, I appreciate that. I think it's helpful to have that context and understand the, the difficulties in translating and to either preserve or to remove ambiguity. It's, it's never a, a simple matter, so that, that's really helpful. I want to look and, and think about the book itself. I think it's always difficult in a podcast medium because we can't actually see the book. So in that sense, definitely encourage people to check it out, buy it, look at at the openbook.press. When, when I look at the book, it's, it's very beautiful. It's aesthetically very pleasing. It's a nice coffee table size book, quite large and heavy. How did you come up with the aesthetic elements and, and come to decide that this is the way that it was going to look and feel? 
So it's it's good that you bring this up because this is a book that I think the design is almost as important, if not as important, as as the book itself, uh, the content of the book. And I have a I, I'm not a designer myself, but I am very very fortunate to have a partner in this in this endeavor um, whose name is uh, Baruch Gorkin, who's who's really a master designer and typographer. He actually created a special Hebrew font specifically for this project. He's created many, many other uh, famous Hebrew fonts. As a matter of fact, I believe the Arial font that's used in, in Microsoft uh, computers is was created by him like 30, 40 years ago, um, about 30 years ago, I believe. A- anyway, but but and, and there are also a lot of illustrations and charts and, and graphs and maps in this book as well, which 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 he created, which are very helpful for processing complex information. But but one of the things that we really try to do with this book is to really make it usable and accessible to a very wide range of audiences. Like I've had people who've been studying Torah all their life, literally, who are greater scholars than myself, who have spent decades delving into Torah scholarship, who for them, they tell me this book is an eye-opener. It's something which they learn so much from. And I've had people who've never opened up a Jewish book or Hebrew book in their lives, literally saying they've found this usable and accessible. So how do you make a book usable and not just usable, but relevant to so many, such a wide range of users? And the key to this is, is actually what Baruch calls multiple access points. We created a page, and the format of the page here is very significant, both how the Hebrew runs, how the English runs, how the different commentaries are put on the page. There's different areas, and this allows the reader to sort of zero in to whatever they are looking for. In other words, there's so many different ways you can use this book. You can use this book the way that the, instead of having the anthology of commentaries, rather than being a running anthology, is actually broken up into actual um, bite-sized pieces, each one being a paragraph or, or two, most of them. Some are run a little bit longer, but the vast majority of them are just a few lines long or maybe a paragraph or two long. And you can read each of these commentary citations could be read completely on its own. And the reader comes away with an insight, with an idea, with a fascinating view, uh, simply by reading that. Or you can read a string of these commentaries that runs for a page or two and see how each one builds on the other one and and each one basically together, they give you a a full multifaceted uh, picture. Another thing that we did was we separated out two different types of biblical commentary. If you read all biblical commentary, it falls into one of two categories in a very generalized way. And the way I look at it is there's what does it mean, and then there's what does it mean to me, which are two completely different areas of Torah. One, One, a lot of biblical commentary is very technical. A lot of biblical commentary deals with, okay, what exactly does this word mean? Uh, or or why did X say Y? And why did Z do B? And so on and so forth. And a lot of it deals with a lot of technical uh, questions and resolving contradictions in the text or explaining uh, difficult things in the text. 
and and that obviously tends to be a, a very uh, a te- a technical side of the study, which is very important and very necessary. And and obviously, serious scholars take this very seriously. Then you have like, what does this mean to me? What do I take from this? What does this teach me? What does this tell me about my own life? That's a whole other area of, of biblical commentary. Now, of course, the two are intertwined. There's a lot of overlapping. And the second is really deriving from the first, because obviously, first, you have to understand the text. And once you understand what the text is saying, or the many different things that the text is saying, then you're going to be able to apply it to yourself. But what we did was we created two areas of commentaries. If you look on the page, there's a shaded box called Lexicon and Notes, which deals with the more technical uh, side of it. And there you'll have, in a very, very concise format, you'll have a, a single word or phrase, and then we'll bring the many, many different w- ways that it's understood. So sometimes you'll find a word or phrase, and then you'll find three or four or even five or six different meanings or interpretations of how it's understood, but that's isolated in a separate box. Someone who gravitates to that and wants to pursue that technical side of things goes there. And then you have the the actual body of the commentary itself, which is consists of much more relatable. Here we're quoting different commentaries of how they, how they understand the psychology or the, or the deeper mystical meaning or the legal application of, of, of what the text is saying. And of course, you can also read both and see how they overlap with each other and how one informs the other. So this in other ways, and then we have also each, for example, each parsha, which is a section in Torah, has, has, has a supplement, which is the Midrashic supplement, which contains longer narratives, which are, if they were actually included in the commentary, they would sort of uh, make everything else less accessible, but they're also very critical parts of the, of the Torah. Then we have each parasha also has an overview, which sort of pulls together um, the various different commentaries that are on this parasha and sort of creates a cohesive narrative out of some of the major things. And like we said, we prefer to intervene as little as possible between the source text and the reader. At the same time, we recognize there are some readers who would like to see a more cohesive approach to things. So that's has its own place. It doesn't interfere with the rest of the book, but if you want to go ahead and just see some kind of overview that's going to pull together everything that's in this section of Torah, you'll have that. Then we also have addendums in the back of the book that deal with uh, more complex issues and, and, and analyze them and so on. So the bottom line is you have many, many different ways of accessing the book, and one does not interfere with the other. One does not impinge on the other. And therefore, whatever you want to use this book right now, whoever you are or whatever you want to do right now, right now you just want to spend five minutes or right now you want to spend three hours, you have all these options available to you. And that's, of course, facilitated by the design, which is a hugely challenging task. And this is something which which I believe Baruch has done in a very masterful way. It definitely is masterful. It's it's really a work of art as well as a, a great literary work. One of the things I'm curious about is we mentioned before that this is first book of the Bible, first part of a series, which is already underway. And this is also the first book for Open Book Press. What is Open Book Press and how did it come about? Well, Open Book Press came about, uh, it's basically founded by myself and Baruch, and it came about in order to um, to produce this project. Uh, 
Um, uh, you know, we realized at a certain point that when you want to, if you want to do something and you want to do it the way that you feel it needs to be done, you really have to do it yourself. Um, you know, one of the reasons why we basically have this freedom of not following any particular agenda or not following any particular ideology uh, is because we're an independent uh, organization. Um, and, at, at, you know, obviously the common thinking in, in projects like this is, well, you have to get funding for it. And so who's funding it? So the person who's funding it is also going to tell you how to do it or what to do. So even though I'm, I'm not a fundraiser, it's definitely not what I've done in the last uh, uh, 30 plus years of, of my career. At this point, I realized if I want to do this the way I want to do it, I'm going to have to find the funding for it myself, which is what we did. And, and thank God we found people who believe in this vision, who believe in this approach. And uh, obviously we still require um, quite a bit of funding to finish the project, but at least right now we've secured the funding to, to produce uh, this and to also continue. Uh, as I said, it's an ongoing work right now. Myself and, and the team that I'm putting together uh, is is actually well on their way in completing the other four books uh, of the Torah. So that's what Open Book Press is. Open Book Press is, is a nonprofit that was formed um, in order to uh, produce this project. And we obviously have plans of creating other other works and other books in the same spirit with the same editorial approach. But our first uh, our first project is, of course, the most basic fundamental book of Judaism, which is the Torah. We started with the book of Genesis, which is obviously the first book of the Torah and the most fascinating one in many ways uh, and, and has this rich diversity of narratives and, and ideas that uh, are, like I said, really an encapsulation of, of the whole of Judaism. Lovely. This week, the traditional Torah reading is that of Noah. I'm not sure if we'll get the episode in before then, Maybe something from from the next week could could be good as well. Are there any insights from from these current Torah readings that you could share with us that could help us give a taste and flavor of of the book itself? Okay, so you know what, I'll, I'll go for I'll, I'll I'll shoot for next week, uh, which is Lech Lecha, which is the third parsha. You know, the Torah is divided into uh, fifty four parashiot, which are fifty four sections or readings. And this is part of the annual Torah reading cycle. Of course, there's, there's a maximum of 54 weeks in any particular Jewish year. The Jewish year, as some of you know, varies in length because we have years of 12 months, years of 13 months. That has to do with the lunar nature of, of the Jewish calendar, which is not like the, the, the you know a secular year has 52 weeks, and that's the way it is. The Jewish year will have anywhere between 14, 48 and 54 weeks in it, or actually, well, not 48, but 48 Parsha readings. So so you have uh, an annual Torah reading cycle in which every week you study and read in the synagogue on Shabbat, but also throughout the week, we're studying uh, this Parsha. And this is a way, as uh, a famous saying by the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, that a Jew needs to live with the times and what he meant when he said a Jew needs to live with the times is not, you know, to follow the latest fashions, but what he meant was live with the weekly Torah reading. That should be your sort of spiritual guide for the week. So next week we're going to read Parsha Lech Lecha, which actually 
begins the story of the Jewish people. The first two parashiyot, Bereshit and Noach, uh, uh, tell the story of humanity as a whole, the early history of humanity, uh, the creation of man, and 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 and, and the subsequent, you know, uh, Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel, and 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 then you have a Noah yet story of the flood, the story of the of the Tower of Babel, but then we start with with the with the first Jew, okay, so um, and it starts off, it opens up with God speaking to. Uh, to Abraham, and he's telling you, uh, he's telling Abraham, go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And this journey of of Abraham starting out um, into in the, to, to the land of Israel by God's uh, command is basically where the story of the Jewish people starts. We've been journeying ever since. And it starts off with this journey. So I'll just share one one uh, commentary string, is what I call them. Uh, in this very opening verse of, of Lech Lecha, there's an interesting phrase here where God doesn't tell Abraham immediately where he should go. Uh, he, he appears to Abraham and he says, go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house. El Haaretz Asher Areka to the land which I will show you. And then Abraham Abraham gets up. At that point, he was still called Abraham. Later, God changes his name to Abraham, which is a whole other uh, narrative. And he gets up and he follows God's command without even knowing where he's going. And God basically shows him where to go. How is he shown where to go is a whole separate discussion, different ways that the, that the commentaries exp- uh, understand and explain how he was guided to go where he went. But the interesting thing is to the land that I will show you. So um, why why do it this way? Why not just tell him where he's going? So there's... there's, uh, there's, there's there's uh, I'll bring three or four different explanations for this. One of them is from the Kuzari. The Kuzari was was written by Rabbi Yehuda Levi in the 12th century. It's one of the most famous fundamental works of Jewish philosophy, where he basically puts, puts uh, expresses the full the whole theology of the Jewish people. And one of the major themes of the Kuzari is the centrality of the Holy Land to Judaism. How the whole of Judaism is centered around the Jewish people's relationship with the land of Israel. And basically what the Kuzari writes is he says, all prophecy occurs in the Holy Land or for its sake. In other words, a huge, the whole basis of, of Judaism, we have the whole Bible, it's all uh, centered around prophecy, about God communicating to the prophets. And all of the prophets, or virtually all of the prophets, lived in the Holy Land because to have this direct experience of God speaking to you and God communicating his what he wants to say to a human being, that is something which is possible in the Holy Land only. And there are some exceptions to that. There's a famous prophet Ezekiel who prophesied in the, in the land of Babylon. There's different Midrashim. There's even a, a Midrashic uh, 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 there's even a midrash that says that every time he needed to prophecy, an angel would carry him to the holy land, and he would prophecy there. That's obviously a very extreme uh, interpretation. But even when he did prophecy in the in the in the in Babylon, it was for the sake of the holy land. He was describing what will happen in the holy land. He was describing the third temple. He was describing other things. 
So that will happen in the Holy Land. So therefore, what Kuzari is saying here is that there was no way, because Abraham wasn't in the Holy Land yet, there was no way that he would be able to receive a clear and unambiguous, unambiguous vision of his journey yet. God could only sort of prod him and hint to him where he's going because the only time when he would be able to have a clear picture of his destiny and of his history and, and where the Jewish people are going was only when he actually got there. So it's sort of like a catch-22. He has to get there, but to be told to get there, he has to be there. So how does that happen? That happens in this ambiguous way. So that's the Kuzari. And to Kuzari, this is a, a, a very profound lesson in how central the Holy Land is to our relationship with God. Okay? Uh, then there's the Midrash. That's the Kuzari. That's sort of the philosophical uh, approach. Then you have the Midrash. The Midrash says it was in order to make the land more desirable to Abraham. When do, we, when do we want something when it's just a little bit out of our reach? When, when do we strive for something? We strive for something where uh, when, when, when we still have to sort of figure, this is, goes back to what I was saying before, the true learning experience is when you have to figure it out for yourself. You can have the most illuminating, fascinating, profound idea. If it's just presented to you as is, and you got the finished product sort of served to you on, on a tray, you don't appreciate it as much. You appreciate something that you struggle for. And therefore, Abraham sort of had to uh, be told, um, ha had to sort of uh, uh, learn on his own where he's going in order to make the land more appreciated to him. That's the Midrash. And the Midrash says another thing also. He says God wanted to reward Abraham for every step that he took. In other words, when you follow the will of God, there's obviously great reward for your obedience and, and for what you've done. But if it was just one instruction, go to the land, X, Y, Z, and he goes. So he did sort of one mitzvah. Here, every single step of the way is a new mitzvah, is a new good deed, a new act of obedience to God, because he doesn't know where he's going. Every step he's taking is in response to the divine call, go. So 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 that that uh, is 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 a... Uh, is another profound insight from the Midrash. Then we have a fascinating insight from Rab Nachman of Breslov, the famous Hasidic master. And he says, in the life journey of every person, even of the most righteous, there must be doubts and uncertainties. It is only by searching through the confusion that a person attains true heights. This is a fascinating idea that we usually think, well, the easier things are, the more straight things are, the more, the more smooth things are. This will allow us to, 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 you know, we can reach true illumination and tranquility. And Rav Nachman is saying the opposite is true. It's only when you're struggling, and not just struggling, but he's, he's talking specifically about doubts. In a person who has no doubts, the person whose faith is, is, is pure and simple, and he just accepts everything at face value, is not having that same depth of connection with God than the person who's doubting who's doubting himself even, where am I going? I don't even know where I'm going. How am I even going to get there? That is all part of the journey that brings us to where we want to go. There are other insights on this verse. There's another insight from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in which the Rebbe says, it's fascinating that the very first communication by God to the very first Jew is go, lech lecha, go you. And what is that telling us? That's telling us that we have to constantly be journeying. Whenever, if any point in time that we are satisfied where we are, 
and 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 we were and we think that we've arrived, then that's not what being Jewish is about. What's being a Jew is to constantly be striving for more. Every plateau you reach is only a stepping stone to reach the next height. So that these are this is just a small selection of the various angles that that the different great Jewish uh, thinkers have read into this verse uh, through the generations. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that answer and, and everything you've said. Appreciate the insight and the erudition. We've taken up a lot of your time, and I want to ask you the closing question that we typically ask on New Books Network. What are you working on next? Well, as I said, I think I said that already because I, I, I'm not really ready to think about the next because we really have to finish this project. This is only one book of five, right? The five books of Moses, as as the as the name implies, this actually consists of five books. And while in many ways the book of Genesis is perhaps the most fascinating one, each one in its own way is also very fascinating. The book of Exodus, which tells the story of the slavery in Egypt and the Exodus and the revelation at Sinai. We have the book of Leviticus, which many people just think is a list of offerings and sacrifices, but it has some of the most fundamental teachings of the Torah in it. The famous saying, love your fellow as yourself, which great Jewish teachers believe is the very essence of the entire Torah, is there in the book of Leviticus, as are many, many other uh, social laws and 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 values. We have the book of Numbers, which is which tells the story of the Jewish people's uh, journey through the desert, the Sinai, and then we of course have the book of Deuteronomy, which contains some of the most fundamental elements of Jewish of Jewish faith and Jewish teaching. So each one of these books is a project unto itself, uh, as complex and as diverse and as fascinating as the book of Genesis is. And then we also have a planet, I guess you can call this the next thing, is as you see, the book of Genesis is itself a very formidable volume, and the other four will also be that. But we also have a plan of creating a single volume edition for the full Chumash, which will obviously be a more condensed or more, uh, um, uh, you know, um, more uh, uh, digestible um, version but again, with the same sensibility, the same approach, the same idea as uh, the book of Genesis is. I look forward to, to seeing all those c- come to fruition as soon as, as you'll, you'll get them out. Okay. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it. You too. We have been talking to Rabbi Yanki Tauber, author of the book of Genesis with commentary and insights from 500 Sages and Mystics, published by Open Book Press in 2022. Happy reading, my friends. <laughs>